Have you already encountered a model that you know is scientifically sound, but that MCMC just wouldn't run? The model would take forever to run, if it ever ran, and you would be greeted with a lot of divergences in the end. Yeah, I know my stress levels start raising too when I hear the word divergences. Well, you'll be glad to hear that there are tricks to make these models run. And one of these tricks is called reparameterization. I bet you already heard about the poorly named non-centered parameterization, right? Well, fear no more. In this episode, Maria Gorinova will tell you all about this model reparameterizations. Maria is a PhD student in data science and AI at the University of Edinburgh. Her broad interests range from programming languages and verification to machine learning and human-computer interaction. More specifically, Maria is interested in probabilistic programming languages and in exploring ways of applying program analysis techniques to existing PPLs in order to improve usability of the language or efficiency of inference. As you'll hear in the episode, she thinks a lot about the language aspect of probabilistic programming and works on the automation of various tricks in probabilistic programming. Automatic reparameterization, automatic marginalization, automatic and efficient model-specific inference, as Maria also has experience with several PPLs like Stan, Edward II, and TensorFlow probability, she'll tell us what she thinks a good PPL design requires and what the future of PPLs looks like to her. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 17, recorded April 13, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.anvil.app. That's learnbasedstats.anvil.app. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesi and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Less a Bayesian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes wide and maybe... Maria Gorinova, welcome to learning Bayesian statistics. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks for taking the time. It's great to have you on the show. I'm very excited to talk about your work. And I have to say, it's the first time we're going to go into the weeds of uh, reparameterization of models. I think it's a very important topic, but you don't know it when you start learning Bayesian statistics. That's totally true. I'm excited to talk about this too. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah, great. But before that, let's start by your background, because you work on data science, on probabilistic programming now, but how did you actually get there? What's your story? Yeah, a good question. You know what? I'm going to start with one very funny, cheesy story from my childhood. You know, it's one of those things where people write personal statements for going into union. They say, hi, ever since I was born. I was into maths or whatever. Uh, and actually, I have a story like that, which is true. And I embarrassingly actually used for one of my personal statements. So there is a tradition in Bulgaria, where I come from, which is called Prostapunik. And it's done when a child firstly starts to walk. So like around one, two years old. And the idea of Prostapunik is that the family members put some objects on one side of the room. 
that represent different professions. And then the child walk there, grab one of them. And the first object that the child grabs symbolizes the career path mm. of the child. Yeah, okay. Guess what I picked up? <laughs> you picked the Stan user manual. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would have been awesome in 1993. No, I grabbed the floppy disk. My mom was very disturbed by that and she made me pick up again and I picked up the toothbrush. She was happy with that. She really wanted me to become a dentist or something, but too mm. bad, ma'am, I'm sorry. Anyway, <laughs> so I was really into actually programming and math since very early age, which is why I decided to go and study computer science because I love computers. I didn't really know more about this. I started getting interested in formal topics mm. like formal programming languages, semantic stuff, type theory, program verification, logic, all these subjects. But also at the back of my mind, I was always curious about AI. Mm. I never really got to explore it before I went into the master's program here in Edinburgh. I think now they updated the syllabus in Cambridge, but back then it had nothing, basically, in terms of machine learning and so on. And I was very lucky that actually I had the opportunity to go for an internship at Microsoft Research as an undergrad. So I got some research experience back then, and that made me realize I want to do a PhD. Mm. And with all the interest in logic and so on, and the curiosity about AI, whatever that means, I wanted to do something in between those two things. So that's how I ended up doing probability programming, because okay. on the one hand, you have statistics and Bayesian inference, on the other hand, you have programming languages. And it seemed like a very curious thing to do. That's funny to hear that. And when you say that back then there were no real syllabus to do machine learning and AI and, and all that stuff, when was that? Beginning of the 2010s? A bit later, maybe 2013, 2014. It's quite recent. It's quite recent for undergrads. I think mm -mm. all the machine learning stuff was sort of pushed into master's courses. Mm. And now I know they changed it. We had an AI course, but it was very kind of outdated, I would say. Actually, do you know why since a very young age you have been attracted to math and computational topics? Did you ever crack that problem or is it still a kind of a mystery to you? Oh, I don't know. I have so many anecdotes. I could tell you anecdotes like me being a child and asking my dad how the computer works and him telling me curious stuff that would just blow my mind. <laughs> He has a way of explaining things that makes everything interesting, so I suppose. Was your dad into computers also? Was he working in computer science? He's a physicist, oh, but okay. he spent some time in his early career doing programming. Actually, I think he created some operating system that was used in Russian computers at some point. So, oh, like, okay. you know, I mean, I don't give him enough credit. He did stuff. Yeah, yeah, clearly. <laughs> That's fascinating. But yeah, he would just explain stuff in a very interesting way. I would ask him how the computer works and he would tell me something like, every time you press the on button on the computer, it is born anew. And so, so he would explain the booting process, right? But in a very kind of curious way. And mm. I'll be like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I remember when I started programming too, it felt a little like magic because yeah. just having the computer do something that's really boring to you and that the computer does a lot better and a lot quicker. You're like, wow, it's awesome. I gotta do that every day, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's good. It is a bit like magic, which you can control. It's very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I can understand why then working in computer science and so on, you would be drawn to Bayesian inference because actually Bayesian inference a lot of times relies on computer science and algorithm behind that. Yeah, basically mm. computers have to compute stuff very fast and very efficiently. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, it sounds like you first were introduced to computer science and programming, and then you went into Bayesian statistics. So do you remember how you got introduced to Bayesian methods? And do you still work on that today? Good question. It was after I spent some time doing a research internship, I learned that there is a thing called Bayesian networks. And mm. I don't know why, but I was very interested in Bayesian networks. I had no idea what Bayesian networks are. And it was time for my third year project, the final project during my bachelor's. I firstly chose my supervisor, who is Advait Sarkar, who conceived the idea of the amazing project that I did in my undergrad. And I just told him, I want to do something to do with Bayesian networks. So he took some time, he thought about it, and he came up with a project which had to do with infer.net, which is a probabilistic programming language, like a .NET framework or addition to the framework. So the project was create a live ID, which you would use to write probabilistic programming in fur.net. And the ID will visualize like a Bayesian network and oh, nice. you know show all the dependencies mm -hmm. and also visualize some of the marginal distributions on one side. And all of this will be live. So you would go ahead and like change something about the program, like add another variable or yeah. observe something and the graphics will update. Yeah. So this was the first time I got introduced to Bayesian inference and so on, or more like probabilistic programming, because I didn't really understand inference back then. But I was very, very curious about it, and I really wanted to learn more. When I came to Edinburgh to do this CDT program, which is master's plus PhD, and I spoke with my current advisors, Andy and Charles, we decided that this is probably the most suitable topic for me to go to, and I was very excited to explore it more. Okay. Is this uh, still working, still live? Can people <laughs> use it still? Or? I think it's on GitHub. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. If I, <laughs> I haven't looked at it in a long time. I hope it still works. I don't know. <laughs> it, it didn't uh, compute the posterior uh, itself, right? Oh, it just used infer.net. I would say it was more of a HCI project, a mm. human-computer interaction project than statistics project or anything like that. So I didn't do inference myself. But I learned a lot about probabilistic programming, mm. I feel, which was very interesting. Oh, clearly I can guess that you worked a lot about that. Actually, that would be interesting to ask you if you had to give a quick definition, you know, an executive summary or a Twitter-like definition of <laughs> probabilistic programming, what would you say? Oof. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. It's hard because different people understand different things and there are probabilistic programming languages that do different things. If I had to write a tweet, though, explaining what probabilistic programming is. It will probably be something like a probabilistic programming language is a language that allows you to write a function which has some uncertainty in it. Mm. So it has some random variables in it and then invert that function. Mm. So give it an output and get an input. So I will probably give a quick Twitter summary like this. So that for me is one description of probabilistic programming. So you have a generative process, you describe how you generate your data, then you observe your data and you want to work out how the parameters change. Yeah. 
But you know, there are different definitions. Some people understand it in a bit more undirected way. So this is a very directed, generative yeah. way of understanding it. Well done, because I put you on the spot with this question. <laughs> and I think it's a, it's a very nice definition. You know, Twitter definition is hard. It's yeah. only well, like how many symbols? <laughs> it's a really good definition. It conveys the idea that you have uncertainty in your function. And I like the idea. I didn't hear that yet anywhere else, but the idea of saying, you give the output to the function and you ask it for the input. That's a nice way mm -hmm. to put it. It's basically what Bayesian inference is all about, actually. Mm -hmm. That brings me to another point. In my mind, Bayesian inference and probabilistic programming really go hand to hand. In your definition, you can see why. You will really understand that behind that there is Bayes rule and the idea is to have the input based on the output. Do you think that it's possible to have a probabilistic programming language, which is not for doing Bayesian inference? Oh, interesting question. To me, probabilistic programming and Bayesian inference are somehow about reasoning about uncertainty. Mm. Under that definition, yeah. the definition of like reasoning about uncertainty, how they wouldn't be connected. Mm. Maybe it will be something else if they're not connected, right? For example, TensorFlow that I would call differentiable programming. Mm. And then when you put something like TensorFlow probability and Edward 2 on top of this, then it becomes probabilistic programming. It's a weird question, I'll say, but from that interesting. We reason about the uncertainty in Bayesian inference and probabilistic programming through Bayes rule. So maybe if we find a way to do that otherwise, then you could have a divergence between probabilistic programming language and Bayesian inference because Bayesian inference we would still rely on Bayes rule to do the inversion of the probabilities that you talked about. But maybe this PPL would use another rule that we devised maybe in 2032. Maybe again in Scotland by one of the descendants of Francis Bayes, you know. <laughs> what do I hear here? This sounds like hearsay. Are you talking about... Frequent statistics? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was drawing you into that. <laughs> well I done. see. No, I don't talk about that church. <laughs> <laughs> no, the truth is I don't know that much about non-Bayesian statistics, so I can't say anything. Yeah, it was a fun thought experiment, you know. <laughs> Actually, so going back to Bayesian stuff, I'm wondering what's your favorite technical stack when you're doing Bayesian models, Bayesian inference? Well, for my work, I don't do Bayesian inference that often myself mm. because my work is more about like designing the languages or like working on the probabilistic programming languages themselves. But when I, I do, so for example, now with the pandemic we're having, obviously I was curious of quickly coding some model to see what is going to tell me about rate of infection and all sorts of things like that. So I use Stan mm. for that. And I, I think I'll always go to Stan because Stan is just very easy to use. Mm. The learning curve is not super steep as far as Probabilistic programming goes, it's mm. very user-friendly. It does everything automatically. It tells you if something is going wrong. Mm. It has all these diagnostics. So yeah. yeah, I love Stan. Stan is awesome. And actually, when you work on your new ideas for probabilistic programming languages, do you do most of this work in Stan or Edward 2? You mentioned Edward 2. Do you contribute to most of the languages or basically you've got some go-to languages that you want to think with? So far, my work has been mostly focused on Stan and mm. also a little bit on Edward II. So the automatic reparameterization that you mentioned, that's with Edward II. So for my work on Stan, I made a language on top of Stan, which is called SlickStan, mm. which is kind of like a blockless version of Stan. So SlickStan is built with F-sharp, which is a functional programming language, really cool. 
So the compiler itself, it's built in F-sharp, but Slickstan, it's like academic version of Stan. <laughs> <laughs> and then with Edward too, this work was mostly done in TensorFlow and TensorFlow Probability. So this, I suppose, is my other stack that I use. And Edward too, if I'm not mistaken, is written in Python. Yeah, it's all like TensorFlow and TensorFlow Probability, which is in Python. Okay, I've never used Edward too yet. Is there a specific use case for Edward too, or is it like Stan kind of a general probabilistic language. Edwards is very different. If you have a model that requires really, really big tensors and matrices going on and sorts of stuff like that, then probably Edwards is the better choice, mm. simply because it's built on top of TensorFlow, right? So you have all this parallelism going at the back. Although some recent updates of Stan are getting pretty good at this as well. But yeah, it's difficult to beat TensorFlow, I suppose, in that respect. So Stan is fully automatic. You just write your model and then it runs HMC, does all the tuning. With Edward 2, you can use different backends. So you can use HMC, you can use variational inference, you can use many things, and you can also modify them. And you can write something yourself as well. So Edward 2 is what I call an effect handling-based probabilistic programming language. Pyro is another language which is like that. So these effect handlers... Imagine the creation of a new random variable mm. is an effect. And we're going to handle this effect with some piece of code. So if the model is a function that has many of those effects, so creation of random variables, when we execute this model in the context of effect handler, every time we see an effect, we're actually going to execute whatever the handler says. Mm. So every time we see that a random variable is being created, we're actually not going to create this random variable, we're going to do something else mm, okay. that we as a user define. So this gives control over what you can do. So the typical handler in Edward 2 is the one that takes a generative model, so it takes something that generates random variables, and instead of generating random variables, evaluate some density, mm. the joint density of the model. And that allows you to use something like HMC or operational inference and so on. But you can also do other stuff. And you can do all sorts of transformations like reparameterization or automatically creating a variational model for variational inference and stuff like that. It's a bit less user-friendly, mm. but it also gives you a lot of flexibility when it comes to what you can do with it. Okay, I understand. It sounds a bit more specialized then. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Sounds very interesting. Maybe I should do an episode also on Edward too. I think it would be very interesting to dive into these different possibilities. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's a perfect segue. Thanks for that. Let's talk model reparameterization because it's one of your topics of interest. So what can you tell us? What is it and when is it useful? Yeah, sure. So one of the best ways of explaining what model reparameterization, or at least the kind of reparameterization I worked on, is, is through an example. And a famous example is called News Funnel, which you might have seen, like if you've seen the standard manual, it's mentioned a lot, and also not just that manual. It's, it's a very famous example. So the example is as follows. Let's say we have two random variables, x and y. Let's say y comes from a normal distribution with mean 0, standard deviation 3, and x comes from a normal distribution with mean 0 and standard deviation e to the power of y divided by 2. Mm. So that's an example. And if you plot the joint density of x and y with x on the x-axis, y on the y-axis, you get this funnel-shaped figure. Like a field V. 
basically. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah, precisely. So this funnel is basically at the top of the funnel, the curvature is very small, so it's kind mm. of like flat. But when you go into the funnel, into that V, the pointy bit, the curvature starts growing and growing and growing, like it becomes very big. So it's very difficult to sample from a density that is shaped like this. Mm. Because there is very strong nonlinear correlation between X and Y. Mm. And even HMC, because HMC kind of takes into account the gradient, mm -mm. which is the first derivative, but not the curvature. Mm. If we would use an inference algorithm such as Riemannian Monte Carlo, which takes into account the curvature, then maybe this problem will be solved. But here it's not. So in a situation like this, we can actually kind of reformulate our inference problem, which is sample from the joint of X and Y. By instead of sampling from the joint of X and Y, we're going to sample from the joint of X hat and Y, where X hat comes from a standard normal. If we sample from this joint where X hat and Y are independent, we know how to sample from this. It's very easy. It's just spherical Gaussian. But now that we got the samples from X hat, we can just scale by the standard deviation of X, which was e to the power of Y divided by 2 for each sample of Y. And this way we recover samples from the joint of X and Y. Mm -mm -mm. We can literally like write those two things in Stan that way. And in the first case, when we have just X and Y, that's called centered parametrization. And we'll have this horrible geometry yeah. that HMC will struggle with. And in the other case, when we have Y and X hat, that's non-centered parametrization. Yeah. And that will be much easier to sample. Mm -mm -mm. This sounds great. It sounds like, oh, yeah, let's use non-centered parametrization all the time. And actually, in hierarchical models, very often we want to use non-centered parametrization. And if you go to Stan's user manual, it explains all of this and explains it much better than I explain it. So go ahead and read it. It's great. And also Stan forum is really good for this. But you will see a lot of this, like, yeah, use non-centered parametrization, non-centered parametrization, non-centered parametrization. But the thing is that it's not universal. So... A good intuition about it is that in the case with news funnel, we don't have data. So it's very easy to see that, of course, we want to use non-centered parametrization because sampling from the posterior is sampling from the prior, and the prior is great if we use non-centered parametrization. If we have a little bit of data, then intuitively we can think about it as like the posterior is going to be kind of close to the prior. So maybe we, again, want non-centered parametrization, which means breaking these correlations in the prior. But if we have a lot of data, things change and then we don't know. So, and actually most of the time we might want centered parametrization if we have a lot of data. Michael Betancourt has a very good paper on this, which is called The Hamilton and Monte Carlo for Hierarchical Models and explain some of that. So I really recommend that. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Awesome. So basically, it's a hard problem and it's not universal. And sometimes you want center, sometimes non-centered parametrization. Yeah. yeah, exactly. First, thanks for this very nice explanation because it's always, it's always hard uh, to explain that only by audio, I guess. So want to draw diagrams right now. <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, I think it paints the picture uh, quite well and it echoes something we already talked about with uh, Thomas Vicky in episode 11, about the funnel and funnel of doom and so on. <laughs> Great name. Yeah, uh, Thomas likes to call the funnel with that name. I think it's a good name too. What we said in this episode is that actually it's not a problem with the model. It's actually a problem with the sampler, which is not yet able to sample from this weird geometry, as you said. 
So the best would be to have this reparameterization happen when it's most useful automatically. So I think you will agree with that because you work a lot on that. <laughs> <laughs> but where are we on that? What's the state of the art with automatic reparameterization? Glad you asked. <laughs> I worked on that a little bit with Dave Moore and Matt Hoffman from Google. Mm. And we have this paper, which you can see on archive. It's called Automatic Reparameterization of Probabilistic Programs. In this paper, we only kind of considered centered versus non-centered parameterization. Because there are many other parameterizations, which... I didn't mention it though. <laughs> so we take centered and non-centered parameterization, and you can imagine that in a big model where we have many variables, we want to decide for each variable, should that be centered or non-centered? You know, it could be a lot of variables to decide on. And yeah, that's why when you do that by Henny, so it's, I, I don't know which variable should I reparameterize or not. Yeah, it's ridiculous because it's an exponential search space, right? You, yeah, you have yeah. so many combinations there. Like exponential search space, yay. What do we use for that? What's great for this? <laughs> we kind of reached the conclusion that one thing that we could do that could be very useful is if we use gradient-based methods to find out what the best parameterization is, right? <laughs> but for that, you don't want a binary choice because we, here we have binary choice, zero or one, non-centered or centered. Mm -hmm. You want something that's relaxed and continuous. So we came up with this parameterization, which we called variationally inferred parameterization. Mm -hmm. It has a parameterization parameter which kind of determines where on the scale between centered and non-centered we are. Yeah, yeah. And then we reparameterize the model this way and we can use variational inference to figure out what the best parameterization parameter is. Mm. Basically, the idea that we rely upon is that if variational inference works well and fits the posterior well, then that posterior, that reparameterized posterior, is going to be easier to sample from with anything. Mm. So we use mean field variational inference. So you can imagine we're trying to fit like an ellipse that is axis aligned. So the more our posterior looks like an ellipse that is axis aligned or a sphere that is axis aligned, the more this is easier to sample from. Mm. And we use this as a pre-processing step. So then we kind of like extract what the best parameterization is. And we can use that parameterization to then run HMC or something else, whatever we want. I don't know if that makes sense. So if I understand correctly, you first do variational inference on the model itself. And then depending on the result of this variational inference round, then you run HMC with the centered or non-centered parameterization. Not quite. We reparameterize the original model with this variationally inferred parameterization, which involves some parameters. So for each random variable in the program mm -hmm. has a parameter associated with it. Here I mean it not as a parameter that we're going to infer with Bayesian inference. I mean as a neural network parameter. Yeah, exactly. It sounds a little like hyperparameter tuning in machine learning. No, because we do it automatically. We don't tune that. Oh, okay. So it's a weight. It's a neural network yeah, weight. Yeah, yeah. And then we also have some other weights that describe the mean field variational fit. And we derive an elbow that describes the discrepancy between the posterior and the variational distribution. And we optimize for both the variational parameters and these parameterization parameters that tell us what the, the parameterization is. So at the end of this optimization, we have some values for the parameterization parameters. Mm. They can be anywhere between zero and one. Yeah. Zero would mean non-centered, one would mean centered, mm. 
but there is also stuff in between. They will be also variable, like per variable. Well, that uh, hyperparameter, but how do you reparameterize a variable that has a hyperparameter of 0.4 or 0.5? What does it mean to have a 0.5 reparameterization parameter? Right. So if you look at the paper that will kind of lay that out and there are some nice plots that explain it intuitively as well. But the basic idea of VIP is that, you know, how with non-centered parameterization, let's say we have X. In centered parameterization, we have X with mean, mu, and standard deviation sigma. Mm. And in non-centered parameterization, we're going to have X hat with mean zero and standard deviation one. And then we're going to derive X from that. Mm. In variationally inferred parameterization, we're going to have x hat coming from mean mu times lambda and standard deviation sigma to the lambda, mm. where lambda is this parameterization parameter. So this is a TensorFlow variable that we're going to learn, which is between 0 and 1. Yeah, okay. And it's the same way we can get x out of that, mm -mm. we can derive x from that. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Well done on that. It's awesome. And when do you think this method will be available in, I'd say, the blockbuster probabilistic programming languages like Stan or PyMC or TensorFlow Probability and so on? Because right now you guys wrote a paper about that and that sounds really interesting. But how do you think this will trickle down into different PPLs and allow users to use this technique on a daily basis? I think you can already use it in Edward 30. I think it, the repo is public. You okay. can already use this. Oh. Maybe not as part of the official Edward 2 release. I'm not sure about this, but the paper definitely has a link to the repo with all the experiments and so on. So that code is available. And it has also been implemented in Pyro. So you can use this kind of automatic reparameterization in Pyro, I think. Implementing it in Stan, I think it might be a bit more difficult, simply because there is very little support for variational inference in Stan at the moment, and this requires variational inference. And I'm not sure about this, but it should be possible. It will be a bit different because in the idea with the kind of reparameterization we did in Edward 2 was that uh, the user can do this themselves. They can write a new handler these handlers that I was mentioning, this can be done with an FI handler. Yeah. So it's very easy. And you can come up with other reparameterizations. It doesn't have to be centered or non-centered. You can come up with something else, uh, just write a handler, mm. and it will all be made automatic from there on. And with Stan, that will be a bit different because you have to actually go into the compiler and do those changes there. But it is possible. Okay, so we'll still have to be a little bit patient to use that instead or else. Yeah, especially for complicated parameterizations, because right now it's only this one. Although there is also another work by Matt Hoffman and some other people from Google. I believe it's called Neutra. So this one is kind of the same idea, but applied to general transformations. So you kind of like learn a normalizing flow that does parameterization. And this one is less on the probabilistic programming side and more on the general modeling side. And so it's a bit more heavyweight, but also it's more general and so on. Mm -mm. Okay. And we'll link to all of that, to your paper and to the implementation in Pyro and, and Edward too in the show notes. 
And what's your opinion on the limits of the method you guys managed to implement? I'm, it's a bit cruel to ask you that because I'm fascinated by what you guys did and I'm really impatient to be able to use that. But I guess that you already have some opinion on which cases where this method would be most appropriate, but also which cases where it would have limits and so where there is still work at the frontier as far as automatic reparameterization goes? That's a good question. One of the problems is that it's only about one kind of reparameterization. And it already does a lot, mm. but in many cases it doesn't do enough. It would be great if there was some sort of uh, general way of doing this in terms of probabilistic programming, because it's very lightweight, right? So this entire way of reparameterizing a probabilistic program is very lightweight, but it's so general. We have to come up with different techniques and reparameterizations and kind of like put them in a catalog and implement each one of them separately. And these might still not cover everything we need. Yeah. So that's a problem. And I don't know how general it could be. I think it could be quite useful, but maybe not. It might not be able to solve everything we want. Yeah, of course. And actually, you were saying that the method you guys devised was most appropriate for one type of reparameterization. I was wondering which type it was. Well, well, these types, between centered and non-centered. If we only ask this question, then it's easy to just apply this method. But if we want a more general reparameterization, then we might need to use something like Neutra, but then Neutra is much more heavyweight and so on. What could be other types of reparameterization that you have to use a lot apart from centered and uncentered? What are the types of reparameterization that can be useful for some models? Because I often hear about the centered versus non-centered, but not really about other ones. Or maybe I'm having trouble remembering that I did see other kinds of reparameterization, but I'm not really thinking that I did. Yeah, non-centered versus centered is very common. It has a multivariate version as well, and it works on many distributions, so location scale in general, not only Gaussian distributions. There are other parameterizations, and I think some of them are shown in the stand manual. So the stand user's guide, I think it's called nowadays. That's a place where you can check out. It's reassuring for me because I wasn't aware that you had other important types of parameterizations. Actually, I think what we can see from the paper you guys wrote, I really like the fact that you can have this reparameterization for each parameter in the model. That's really nice. Plus the fact of having a scale of reparameterization instead of just a binary possibility. It's awesome. I guess that most Bayesians think that it's always best to have a scale instead of a binary measure. <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting that sometimes the best parameterization is, in fact, between 0 and 1. It's not centered or non-centered. I wasn't even aware that it was possible to have a non-binary answer to this question. That's the thing. I mean, it doesn't have to be that particular one-to-one -one function between the original variable x and the reparameterized variable x hat. It can be anything. It can be a neural network, which is the case with normalizing flows and neutral. It's fascinating. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely link to the paper in the show notes so that people can read it and see, as you said, the different plots that illustrate this idea of a non-zero or non-one uh, reparameterization. I think this highlights also the language aspect of probabilistic programming. And as you have experience on several PPLs, as we said, I'm wondering if you have in mind what a good PPL design is, in your opinion, and how we could make current PPLs even better? So I like to think about the design of PPLs as a sort of a classic pick two out of three question. <laughs> 
Yeah, so what do we want for a probabilistic programming language? One, we want it to be general. We want to be able to express a very kind of general class of models. Pretty much any question, any model that we want to write, we, we want to be able to express in that language. Then what else do we want? We want, for instance, to be fast. We don't want to have to wait for the entire age of the universe until we get some kind of meaningful answer. So obviously we want inference to be fast and reliable as well. And thirdly, we also want it to be as automatic as possible. That's the idea of probabilistic programming, right? The idea of probabilistic programming is not to have to think about inference yourself. So these are kind of the three components, but Bayesian inference is so hard that it's just impossible to have something that is perfect in all those aspects. So I feel that every probabilistic programming language out there, and there's so many nowadays, each of them sacrifices at least one direction. For example, Stan is largely automatic, very user-friendly, all the tuning, all the diagnostics of this is automatic. And it uses HMC, which is quite efficient and reliable, plus the diagnostics and so on. But at the same time, it puts a restriction over the class of models that can be expressed. So you can't have a random number of random variables in Stan, for example. And other languages like Anglican, for example, is very general. You can write, I wouldn't say every possible model in Anglican, but maybe, I have no idea. And it's quite user-friendly, but it is forced to use a general purpose inference engine. So I think it has many versions of SMC, particle filtering, implemented. So again, it sacrifices in one direction. And finally, we have languages like Edward and Pyro. And I think more recently, there's this probability programming language, Gen, from a group at MIT. Which is based on Julia, right? Yeah, I think it's Julia based, yeah. And they kind of have a more flexible approach to how inference actually happens. So the user has control over inference. I think Gen in particular calls it programmable inference, which I really like as a term. And I think it's very important. So there is the sacrifice here in automation. Mm. So you have general probabilistic programming. You can use fast inference, but you kind of have to do it yourself, at least partially yourself. Yeah. So it's difficult to say, because how do we create a perfect probabilistic programming language? I don't think we can. It's always going to suffer in one direction or another. To be honest, it's the same with usual programming. We have so many programming languages out there, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Each of them focuses on a different thing that's important. But if I am to design a probabilistic programming language, I think there are a few things that would be very important for it. I think most importantly, I would try to build it not as a two-level thing. So currently, a lot of probabilistic programming languages out there have like the modeling bit of the programming language and the inference bit of the programming language, and there is a separation between the two, and that's great. But I feel that what Gen does, for example, is probably the right way forward, which is to really have three levels. So we have the front-end bit where users that know nothing about inference or very little about inference work. And if you work at that level, everything is automatic. As much as possible is automatic. There is like all sorts of static analysis going at the background, trying to compile this to something that's efficient. But maybe you're a statistician and you actually want to fiddle with things. Then there is like the middle layer where you can do programmable inference. So there are some chunks that you can connect and kind of like make your own inference engine or, you know, do all sorts of things like parameterizations and all that. And then there is obviously the backend, which is the inference engine, maybe different implementations of that and so on. So yeah, I think that's something that will be important for probabilistic programming. Yeah, that's very interesting to have your perspective on that. 
So basically the three criteria you gave PPL for them to be automatic, user-friendly, and what was the third factor in your equation? General. Okay. General, fast, and user-friendly. Okay. That's a nice uh, framework. So from what you say there, I think I know what you're gonna answer to the next question I had, but do you think that the different PPLs should become more similar to each other or more different? I think we should stratify with the level of each user, because uh, when you're in advanced, you are able to switch between different PPLs more or less easily. But if you are a beginner or intermediate level user, you invested a lot of time uh, into learning this PPL, so you can't really switch to another one, especially if it's not your core activity. I'm wondering if you think we should be able to do the same things with Stan, TFP, PyMC, Edward, and so on, or each of them should have their specialty. Yeah, if there is like a probabilistic programming language that can be nice to users, that can be like largely automatic, but mm. also provides the flexibility to statisticians and people who really know about inference to dive and do things themselves. And it's also very fast and, you know, it's easily parallelizable. That would be great. But how close can we get to this? I don't know. And currently, we're not close to this for sure. And each probabilistic programming language out there has its own advantages and disadvantages. So it's difficult for me to imagine that this will go away completely. I don't know, a more probable scenario, in my opinion, is that there are going to be a few probabilistic programming languages that are possibly radically different and just target different people and different users. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. As long as we have good tools to work with. For example, Stan is really, really great for a very large class of users and it's very automatic and it has this wonderful community that helps you if you're a user and go into the forum and ask questions, they're really friendly and so on. But at the same time, it possibly because it's not built on top of TensorFlow, it has like less capability of paralyzing stuff and working with really, really big tensors and matrices and, and so on. So. For that, TensorFlow probability is great. Yeah, yeah, I think though that this diversity is very interesting and also very useful because it brings a lot of new ideas all the time. But at the same time, I think it's kind of mandatory to have one or two general probabilistic programming language, you know, like Stan, like PyMC3, because for beginners and intermediate level users, it's important for them to have this framework that they can really learn with and become familiar with and later switch to more specialized version for their use cases, be it Edward 2 or TensorFlow probability if they need tons of matrices and tensors and so on. And large scale computation and stuff, yeah. Yeah, possibly. Very often there are like just different paradigms behind the probabilistic programming language. Maybe it has to be something like it is with universal programming languages where we have several classes that are very important, like imperative and functional and so on. Mm. So you have those classes and sort of computer science education teaches each of those classes because then if you know one language that is, say, functional, you have an easier time learning more that are functional. So maybe something similar has to be with probabilistic programming as well, because currently I would say Stan is so different to Edward II or Pyro that how do you even jump from one to the other? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering about. 
But if you do that when you're an advanced user and you know most of the theory behind this probabilistic programming language and the samplers and where the limits of Stan and Edward II and so on are, then you can be able to switch quite easily. I guess it's never easy, but you can do it. But of course, you can't really ask someone who just began working on that or who just uses Stan or PMC for building models for industry to be able to constantly switch between the most appropriate framework. Sometimes maybe TFP or Edward 2 will be more interesting because of this or that, but you can have a good enough approximation with Stan or PMC. So keep working on that for now. When you need to have a really, really fine-tuned model, then go to the specialized version. Yeah, absolutely. That's very important. It's the same with programming. If you're a good programmer, you're a good programmer. It's not about what languages you program in. And here it's exactly the same. If you're a good statistician, you're a good statistician. It doesn't matter if you use Stan or Pyro or whatever. Yeah. I want to talk a little about your other projects because you have a very interesting project with uh, discrete parameters, which I think most users will agree are real pain points for... (laughs) a lot of models because Mm. HMC currently can't really handle that very out of the box. So you're working on a project to make that easier to sample from discrete parameters with Stan. So what can you tell us about this project? Oh, I'm very excited to talk about this project. It's work in progress, so it's not published yet or anything, but hopefully there is going to be paper online soon. So at least in the programming languages community, Stan is often criticized as a probabilistic programming language because, you know, it can't even do discrete parameters. How dare Stan not be able to do discrete parameters? (laughs) But actually, you know, and I suppose a lot of listeners to your podcast know, Stan can handle discrete parameters, but it's implicit. So we have to marginalize them out by hand and all that. The same way I see reparameterization as a trick that Stan user guide kind of teaches you how to do. The same way I see the discrete parameters marginalization as a trick that all sorts of manual teach you how to do. And my entire PhD and like interest and everything is about automating those tricks. <laughs> <laughs> so currently the project I'm working on is about automating marginalization so that you can actually write a program, slick stand program, which is again like blockless stand, where you have discrete parameters. And then the compiler takes this and automatically marginalizes them out in a smart way and then resamples them in generated quantities. And when I say in a smart way, I mean that obviously if we have one discrete parameter, that's easy. But when we have many, they can be, you know, let's say it's an HMM. So it's there in a chain. Mm. HMM, just for listeners, would be hidden Markov models. So we want to marginalize them out one by one in the correct order so that it's more efficient because otherwise it might blow up if we if we kind of like try to nest all the sums and so on. Mm. And this is what the algorithm does, automatic marginalization. It kind of looks at this program, finds some structure, and eliminates the variables in a way that it's equivalent to a variable animation algorithm in factor graphs. So I suppose it is like the, the most efficient way of marginalizing up to the order that was provided, which is based on some heuristic currently. You can do things that you could have done yourself, but mm. it will be automatic. So that means that you can only have discrete variables that are finite support, and you have to have fixed number discrete variables and all that. But it reduces the size of your program. It also helps with people that might not be familiar with how to do this because it does it automatically for them. Yeah. It, of course, reduces the chance of 
or even eliminates the chance of mistake when it comes to marginalizing. Otherwise, it's so easy to make a mistake if you have to do it by hand. This is already working in Slickstan, and I'm hoping that Stan be interested to, at some point, implement it into Stan, maybe Stan 3. <laughs> that sounds really, really fascinating. Good luck on this project. It really looks very good. I know you have a, a presentation already of that. Is it ready to share for people? Can we put it in the show notes or is it still to work in progress? Yeah, sure, sure. Perfect. I'll put it in the show notes <laughs> then. It gives a good idea of the outline and the goal of the project. And yeah, there is already some bits of stand models and so on. It's already quite good. Before closing up the show... Because we talked about the future of PPLs, so I'm wondering if you have kind of a favorite topic, which advances are particularly exciting to you in this field? Obviously, anything to do with automation. <laughs> <laughs> How to automatically figure out what inference algorithm to use in different cases or how to split a model into different chunks that we can apply different inference algorithms to and so on. The discrete parameters problem is actually a very good use case for this because we have parts of the model and that's the discrete parts of the model that our efficient inference algorithm can't handle mm. and we want to do something with them and kind of paraphrase the program so mm. that we can handle them. And yeah, I'm just wondering what other cases uh, are there like this and what can be done about it and how can we make you know complicated models actually easy to use. Yeah, you've got a lot on your plate, I see. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> I like to think big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, okay, great, Maria. I think now we've covered uh, a lot. But before letting you go, I have to ask you the two questions I ask every guest oh, no. at, the, at the end <laughs> of the show. Yeah, the, the dreaded moment for the guests, because I, I like this moment, you know. <laughs> um, so the, the first question is, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? It's a very hard question because there are so many hard problems out there mm -hmm. and so many important problems. And I know previous guests would say things such as, you know, climate change and sorts of environment policies and, and so on. And these are really important. It's just so hard to say something else. Mm. But I will say something else, which <laughs> is whatever we do, there are so many important things to do. We need good tools. And this includes probabilistic programming. It includes differentiable programming. So we can't solve any of these problems if we are to solve them with automation, of course, and with programming. We can't solve them if we don't have the right tools. Mm. It's like trying to write a neural network in assembly, you know. Mm -hmm. So if I had limited time and resources, I would just hire all the smartest people out there to make the best, most usable, differentiable programming language and probabilistic programming language so that we can solve every problem that is there to solve. <laughs> That's great. I, I love this project. <laughs> <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you should do a, a Kickstarter and please, listeners, go fund Maria's Kickstarter to do that. <laughs> and the second question is if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? I think I have to say Margaret Hamilton. Mm. Really like her, really kind of saw her as a role model. We talked with you a little bit about Maggie Lee, and I kind of I feel the same about her because I'm really into astronomy and so on, just as a hobby. I don't do anything in my work in terms of astronomy but, or astrophysics, but I'm really into it. So I suppose like both of them have something to do with this. You know, M Margaret's work in NASA and with the Apollo program. It's just really impressive. And I've always been very impressed with that. So I would love to have dinner with her. I, I think that's a great choice, definitely. 
Well, Maria, it was a pleasure having you on the show. I think you, you do very interesting and, and very useful work <laughs> automating a lot of painful and difficult parts of probabilistic programming. I did not know this very well before the show, so I learned a lot today. And I'm sure our listeners did too. So thanks a lot. I put uh, resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. So thank you again, Maria, for taking the time and being on this show. Yeah, thanks again for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, fit MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. Thanks so much for listening. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.